Good morning. We're certainly glad to have you here today. We've got some visitors, we've got some old friends, and we're just very happy to have you here with us today. We've been on quite a journey. We began our study about the history of the church in AD 70, the fall of Jerusalem, when the church began to be persecuted. The very first section of time that we covered was a time we called persecuted Christianity for about the first 250 years of the church. They were under terrible persecution. And this was a period of time that was not marked only by the intense persecution, but by the fact that Christianity spread just like wildfire all over the known world at the time. We find during this period of time there was the canon of Christian Scripture that was recognized around. It's the same Bible that you have today. They took books that were written by the apostles and and they recognized the books that were already recognized. They uh, had a kind of a universal agreement on these recognized books. But there was also the rise of the bishop in an effort to fight false doctrine. Heresy, they called it. And in an effort to fight that, they suggested, one man suggested, having one of the elders be the bishop of the church and be the spiritual leader of the church more so than the other elders. And that was the beginning of a great change that produced terrible things in the next period of time. We call that the time of imperial Christianity. And the Roman emperor Constantine was converted. He became a Christian. And not only did he become a Christian, but he had the power to become the head of the visible church. And the Roman emperor began to rule the church of Christ. The government of the church was changed. They began to emulate the government of the Roman system that was very effective and there were they began to have councils to decide church doctrine when there were differences and these councils would make decisions and they would gather together in Rome or wherever the Roman emperor decided and they would make decisions about doctrines in the church and ultimately led to the arisal of the pope because you see if you have one man over each congregation making sure that the doctrine is true, but those men begin to disagree, then you've got to have someone over them to make sure they will all toe the line. And then you've got to have someone over them. And ultimately, they got to one guy they call the Papa or the Father of the church. And Papa is Pope. And that led into the period of time that we in history call the Dark Ages. And it was a terrible, dark, dreadful time when... We call it Christendom. It was a time when the church was governed, the world was governed by what's called the Holy Roman Empire. And they governed the world with superstition and with military might. And they had a double-edged sword, the power of spiritual power, claiming that they stood between man and God and they kept people ignorant so people couldn't read the Bible and know. And then they had military power in the Roman emperors of the day. And it was just a dark and difficult, a bad time. There was a lot of corruption. You've heard the old axiom that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's what happened. And they got to the point where they would sell indulgences. That is, you could go buy forgiveness for sin. Even before you committed the sin, you could go pay a priest a certain amount of money And he would say, you have been forgiven for this sin. They began to sell indulgences to get people out of what they called purgatory. And they taught that 
To be right with God, you had to be right with Jesus through the church and you had to do all the laws that the church gave you. And then, when you died, you had to go to purgatory. And your relatives could pay money to shorten your time in purgatory. It was a terrible, corrupt system. And that led to the time of the Reformation when an angry German monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 things to the door of his church that he disagreed with the Pope on. This had been going for a while, but it ultimately changed the answers to these four questions. Salvation is by Christ, not by the church, because up until five or 1517, for the last thousand years, the teaching was salvation is by Jesus through penance and works that the church puts on you, plus time in purgatory. And Martin Luther and the Reformers said, no, salvation, according to the Bible, is by faith through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Change the the authority. No longer was the Catholic Church and the Pope the ultimate authority, but people began to stand and say, you know what? I believe the Bible, the Word of God should say. And if it says different than the Pope, then we should believe what the Bible says and not what the Pope says. Another thing that changed was that people began to be educated and there was a printing press and so things, Bibles could be printed and the common man got access to Bibles in his language. And they figured out that, you know, you could understand this. It wasn't some mystical, difficult thing that couldn't be understood by a common man. And they began to learn that your relationship to God was personal. You see, it wasn't God up here and you down here in the Catholic Church in between you and God. But it was what the Bible teaches that you had a direct relationship with God through the only mediator, Jesus Christ. And so now we come to the time that we're going to talk about today. We call it the time of restored Christianity, or we might call it the age of restoration. In restored Christianity, there were some things that were a little bit different than just reform. Because the idea of reformation is to change what is there to make it better. But restoration had a different idea. Restored Christianity is marked by four particular things I want to notice. One is a rejection of creeds. Restored Christianity said this, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That all we need is God's Word. We don't need God's Word plus Michael McCorkle's creed that tells you what God's Word means. We just need God's Word. That was precious. For a thousand years, it had been illegal to own a Bible. And if you could get hold of one, it was written in Latin, and you didn't speak Latin. This was a change. And people began to reject the creeds that the Reformers came up with. Because Martin Luther read the Bible, and he said, no, the Catholic Church is wrong. This is the truth, and he wrote a creed. And John Calvin said, no, Martin Luther's right on some things, but he's wrong on these, and he wrote a creed. And another guy wrote a creed, and people began to line up behind all these creeds, and you have the denominationalism that the world knows today that sprang from, well, the Bible plus this creed. And in the Restoration, the idea was this, we don't need a creed written by some man. 
My brother Eddie Bigler sitting here today. I've known Eddie for 35 years, something like that, long time. And I love Eddie. He's a good friend of mine. I don't want him writing a creed for me, though. <laughs> I, I don't want anyone else here writing a creed for me. I don't want our elders writing a creed for us. I just want the Bible. We sing songs about that. Give me the Bible, don't we? You know, another thing that's different in restored Christianity is a restoration of the gospel. The good news that anyone, anywhere in the world can come to believe in Jesus. And you didn't have to do it through some formulated structure. You didn't have to do it through some organization. But all you needed to do was have God's Word and an honest heart and you could become a Christian. They began to teach this. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And he who does not believe will be condemned. Those are the words of Jesus. And they began to teach that. And they began to believe and embrace that. It was a wonderful time. Another thing that marks this period of time is the restoration of church government. If you recall, we've studied many times how God ordained and organized His church. He talks about it in the book of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, the bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus here in Philippi with bishops and deacons. That was the organization of the New Testament church. Every congregation was autonomous. We didn't have somebody in Denton running the church in Gunner or Gunner running the church in Denton. It didn't work that way. Instead, what we had was elders in a church in Denton that were responsible for leading the church in Denton. And elders in Alabama and in Colorado and in India and in Nigeria and everywhere they were that there were Christians. They had elders who were spiritual overseers. They had deacons who worked to serve the church. And they had saints which were Christians. It hadn't been that way for a thousand years. For a thousand years, there had been the peasants, and then there had been the church, which was comprised of the priests and the bishops and the cardinals and the pope who stood between these people. And that was the government of the church. But people went back to the Bible and congregations began to just sprout up everywhere as people with honest hearts got Bibles, read them and said, Oh, I want to do this. I believe this. And anywhere Christians did that, churches began to spring up. And they said, Well, what are we going to do? And they said, Well, here's what it says to do. Let's just do this. And it was a restoring of what they had in the ideal in the New Testament. And finally... A great idea of the restoration movement was born out of very much the, uh, the denominationalism that had come to exist at the time. And it's the idea of unity. You know, for a thousand years there had been some measure of unity because people had to bow to one man. Yeah, I was thinking, if we wanted to unify all the churches in Denton, how would we do that? Would that be possible? Well, there's a couple of ways we could do it. We could set up one man and everybody had to do what he said. And that would do it, right? I mean, everybody would have to do what he said. 
or we'd kill the ones that didn't. And that'd probably unify everybody, right? Another way we could do it is we could just say, you know what? It doesn't matter what you believe. It makes no difference at all. Everybody just believe what they want to believe. Honk if you love Jesus. And we'll all just say we're in unity. That's really not unity. But we could get rid of division that way, right? Jesus prayed for unity. He said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And I'm going to tell you, the restoration plea was a plea to all people who claim Christ to be united. And we're going to talk about that plea and how that worked. But as we do that, I want to tell you that this period of time that we call the restoration, it came as a result of a lot of things that had been growing and happening. You know, there were seeds that were planted much earlier. And in the 1700s, those seeds bloomed into what we call the restoration movement today. You know, division came to America from Europe with the settlers. Lots of the different... different. Uh, Colonies had their specific official religion. In fact, I found this, this document here and it shows the different religions that there was state-sponsored religion in all these original 13 states up until 1830, 1846, 1833, 1867. And I say, that should interfere with religion. It does. The First Amendment said that, and that was a long time before this. But the First Amendment was understood to apply to the federal government, not state governments. And state governments made laws respecting religion. There were some states that if you weren't a member of a particular religion, you couldn't own property or vote here in the United States. There was a lot of conflict and a lot of difference about this. And as the, the expansion of the United States went, went westward, all that division went with them. As the frontier spread, their religious convictions went with them and you had Lutheran and Baptist and Methodist and Amish and on and on, all these different... So by 1800, you had 125 distinct denominations here in the United States. 125. How many do you think there are today? You think there are more than 125? We've probably got 125 in Denton, don't we? There's a bunch of them. Do you know every religious group divides? Catholics are divided. Now, they'll tell you they're not divided. They'll tell you, well, we're the, the original church and we go all the way. Back. But there was a split in 1054 between the Roman and Eastern Orthodox Catholic Church. They split. In fact, we know of 64 distinct denominations that are Catholic. Y'all know who Mel Gibson is? You've heard of Mel Gibson? He's a Catholic, but he's not a Catholic like the Roman Catholics. He's a different branch. He's a different dis division. He's a different denomination of Catholic. 
than your standard Roman Catholic. The uh, Baptists, there's Southern Baptists, Free Will Baptists, Primitive Baptists, American Baptists, on and on, all different divisions of Baptists. The Churches of Christ. There's first Christian and disciples of Christ who were all originally together as a part of what we call the churches of Christ. And there are even divisions among different churches of Christ. There are two groups that will tell you when they knock on your door that we're not like the rest of Christianity. We're not split. We're not divided. But that's not true. The Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, they're the Latter-day Saints, and then there's the Reformed Latter-day Saints, and then there's the group that accepts polygamy, and there's lots of different divisions in the Latter-day Saints. Jehovah's Witnesses are the same thing. They've got the Dawn Bible Fellowship and many, many others. I saw a list of 500 different splinter groups of Jehovah's Witnesses. I said, well, why would they say they're not split? I tell you why they say that. Because they say, well, if you split from us, you're not really a Christian anymore, so we're not a split. (laughs) We're still just us. There's terrible division in Christianity today. Do you think that's a good idea? Jesus didn't. Jesus prayed that His disciples would all be one so that the world would believe that He was the Son of God. The Reformers tried to change the Catholic Church from within. The Restorers had a different idea. To reform means to make changes in something in order to improve it. To restore means to bring back a previous right, practice, or custom. And this idea of restoration that we're talking about today is not new, but it is also not a one-step process. It's not something that just bang happens and then it's done. It's, It's had several stages, and I want to mention to you some of the guys who were important and formative in this development of this restoration movement. First, there was a guy named Erasmus. And Erasmus said this, Let us therefore with our whole heart covet this literature. Let us embrace it, continually occupy ourselves with it, fondly kiss it, at length let us die in its embrace, be transformed in it. And he was talking about the Bible. Erasmus said this, a stream is purest at its source. And so he went looking for old manuscripts of the Bible. And he found them and he put them together into a text of the Bible that was old, that was close to the the source of the stream. He loved the Bible. Now this man was a Catholic at the time. He never joined the Protestant Reformation. But he did talk about the Bible. He did restore the availability of the Bible to some people. And a restoration of the Word of God to people was very important. Taking the chains off of the... You know, they used to chain Bibles to the pulpit at church so people couldn't take them. He began that change. Another guy we've talked about, very important in this, was Martin Luther. He stood at his trial for heresy and he said, unless it can be shown me by the Scriptures how I am wrong, my conscience is bound by the Scriptures. I cannot and will not recant. Do you believe that, Danny? Do you agree with that? Yeah. 
I agree with that. Don't you? The courage it took to say that, they were burning people to death who said that when he said this. But you know, Martin Luther had a lot of, lot of ideas that weren't exact. You know, in fact, Erasmus and Martin Luther had some problems. Martin Luther tried to get Erasmus to join his, his Reformation movement, and Erasmus said this to Martin Luther. He said, you stipulate that we should not ask for or accept anything but Holy Scripture, but you do it in such a way as to require that we permit you to be its sole interpreter, renouncing all others. Thus, the victory will be yours if we allow you to not be the steward, but the Lord of the Holy Scriptures. See, Martin Luther stood up and he said, No, we just need the Bible, not the Pope. And by the way, here's what the Bible means, and if you disagree with me, you're not really a Christian. Is that any different? Now, he didn't have the power the Pope had. He had respect for the Bible that the Pope didn't have. But he had greatest respect for his interpretation, his explanation of the Bible. There's a guy named Zwingli that came along who was a restorer in his right. He said, you must drop all that human learning and learn God's will directly from His own Word. That was a radical, revolutionary idea that you could go to the Word of God and learn what God wanted you to do. You know, as I just have to tell you, as reading through this and going through all the, the all these people who were burned to death and slaughtered because they wanted to translate the Bible into a language people could read. They wanted to read the Bible on their own. And then we sit here with Bibles in our houses that get covered with dust and never touch them. And it's it's shameful. It's amazing how times have gone. I'm get back to my lesson now. That one was for free. <laughs> William Tyndale said, All belief and practice should find its origin in the Bible alone. It's enough to get him killed. Say something like that. There was a restoration needed of biblical morality. And the Puritans tried that. They came to America and they tried to enforce biblical morality on everyone who lived in their colonies. They said a church rightly formed according to the prescript of God's Word is what they wanted. They said the Word of God contains the directions of all things pertaining to the church, yea, of whatsoever things can fall into any part of a man's life. These people said everything you need to live to please God is in the Bible. You need to go to the Bible for that. That's what those people said. Do you agree with that? Amen? Amen. I believe it. There was a change that was blowing through America. Where the Scriptures speak, we speak. Where the Scriptures are silent, we are silent. A guy named Thomas Campbell wrote that in his Declaration and Address in the 1700s. I believe that. I agree with that. That we need to speak where the Bible speaks. And we need to be silent where the Bible is silent. Do you agree with that? I hope you do. Look at this. A guy named Graves said, The church of Christ himself organized in Jerusalem is an authoritative model to be patterned after until the end of time. 
Catholic and various Protestant sects were originated and set up many ages after the ascension of Christ. They are therefore not divine but human institutions. He said, the way Jesus set up the church is the way we want it to be. I believe that. Now, I know we talked about this at the first, that you can look in the Bible and the New Testament churches had a lot of problems. They had moral uh, moral corruption. They had false doctrines and divisions. And they had all kinds of problems. But the ideal that Jesus presented to man is what we strive for. And then, 2002, I heard a preacher say this, we must use the Bible alone as our guide in all things in the church. Jerry McCorkle. That's my dad for most of you, for those of you who didn't know. We still teach and believe these same things. You know what we found through the restoration movement was this. Anywhere you had honest hearts and a Bible. You have an honest heart and a Bible that is opened and read and thought about. You always get the same thing. It always results in Christians. Because God's Word is the seed that's sown into hearts. Jesus told a parable about that, remember? And He said the seed's cast out and it's sown into hearts. And some hearts it grows and some hearts it doesn't. Anywhere the Word of God finds honest hearts, it grows. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether those, these things were so. God said that's noble. To receive the Word of God. Listen to it preached. Receive it and then check and see if that's what God's Word says. And that's what had been denied for thousands of, or hundreds of years And that's what was now being allowed in this fertile soil of freedom that we found in America. And I think it was a wonderful thing. You know, this has always been true. As I've read through history, you know, sometimes people will say, well, a certain church, the Catholic church, or this church, or that church, can trace their roots all the way back. And I want you to know that there have been Christians since day one. Jesus said that His kingdom would be like a tree that would grow and cover the whole earth. Daniel said the kingdom of God would be a stone that grew and that stone would be a kingdom that would never be destroyed. And I want you to know that even though we've read about a lot of wickedness and corruption in the name of Jesus, that wasn't real Christianity. And there were real Christians all the way through. I read one historical record that in the year 141 in the east of Cambridgeshire, Britain, many were baptized in the River Cam. That's where we get Cambridge today. It was a bridge over the River Cam. 141 adult believers were being baptized for the remission of their sins in Britain. There's a guy named John Cassian lived in the three and four hundreds in southern France. He said salvation through Christ is available to all who ask 
through free will choice. And he lived at the same time as a guy named Augustine. And Augustine was the one who came up with John Calvin's doctrines that we call Calvinism today. Of predestination and you have no choice and God will save you if He wants to and burn you if He wants to and there's nothing you can do about it. This guy stood against that. That became official doctrine for a while in the Catholic Church, but not this guy. This guy taught his people and the people where he taught the truth. He rejected and fought against that. In 422, there was a Catholic bishop named Germanus who wrote a letter complaining of the British church that he said practiced believer's baptism, rejected the authority of the Pope and other Catholic doctrines. In 422. Can't believe these people. They're baptizing believers. You know why that was a problem? Because they baptized babies back then. Remember infant baptism? In fact, it's still practiced in much of the world today. These people rejected that because that's not what was in the Bible. There was a guy named Priscillius who his followers were called Priscillians in the 5th century of Spain. said the same thing. He said that we will not baptize babies because they can't have faith. You know why he said that? Because in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian said to Philip, what hinders me that I should be baptized? He said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. If you don't believe, you can't be baptized. What good does it do? Nothing. You're just getting wet. You have to believe to be baptized. He said that. He taught that. And these people were persecuted and slaughtered. In the late 500s, there were a group of people called the Pollicans. The Pollicans were in, uh, in Italy, and there's a picture that was painted in the 800s called the Slaughter of the Pollicans. They slaughtered these people because they rejected infant baptism and taught that faith was a prerequisite to adult baptism. They were called publicans in England, and they spread everywhere. There were thousands of them even as they were being slaughtered by the thousands. I read one place that they estimate that a hundred thousand of these people were put to death for believing what you believe today. In Richborough, Britain, archaeologists dug up this. This is a baptistry. It's a baptistry large enough for immersion of adult believers. It's an open-air baptistry. In England, this was found in a place that was real close to where the Romans originally landed in Britain in 43 A.D. How'd that get there? Well, it got there because people were believing and being taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a place called St. Mylan's Well in England. You can read about it over there. It says, the first to baptize by immersion in Britain. They used this well in the 6th century and they restored it in 1987. It's very different than it used to be. It used to be 6 foot by 6 foot and they would baptize people there. Now, it obviously wasn't the first because we've got that other baptistry that's older than this. But there were people in Britain baptizing in the 6th century for immersion. There was a guy named Berengaris of Tours. He lived in southern France this guy was archdeacon of a big church and he was treasurer of a big cathedral. And he rejected transubstantiation. You remember the teaching that when the Pope said the blessing, the communion turned at literally into flesh and blood? He rejected that. 
And he was excommunicated by the Pope as a result of that. He began to write. He also rejected infant baptism. And he taught that the communion is what you believe the communion is. And he taught that believers who were repentant of their sins should be baptized. He lived the last few years of his life on a little island three miles out from Tours, France, before he died. Peter of Bruce, about 1090 to 1140 is where he lived in southern France. He taught these same kinds of things. He was a priest that was removed from office and began to preach as he traveled throughout southern France. He seemed to have been pretty active in this area and his people, his followers said we should return to Scripture and believers' baptism. They took this guy and they burned him alive at St. Giles in 1140 because of that. Then there was Arnold of Brescia. He was executed by burning under the authority of the prefect of Rome in 1152 and his ashes were thrown into that river right there because he believed and followed the teachings of Peter of Bruce of going back to the Scriptures and believers' baptism. Gregory Grimm, Henry of Toulouse, Peter Waldo. We could go on and on and on talking about the Christians in Oxford, Britain. There were a group of 80 Christians that came to Oxford, Britain and established a church there. And they were ultimately taken over by a troop of Roman soldiers that were sent by the Catholic Church to shut them down. They taught the same things that you believe. Now, I'm not saying that any of these people we've talked about didn't believe some things that were different. As we've already mentioned in this series, you know, any of us here are going to believe a little different about some things. But they had some things that held all these guys who were called heretics together. They were autonomous. They didn't bow to the, the authority of the Catholic Church. They believed in baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. These were people prior to the Anabaptists that we read about. They were pre-Reformation. They saw themselves as the true church of Christ and they denied a need for holy places. They said, you can worship God anywhere. You don't need a cathedral. Does that sound like us? The church has existed. The church has been faithful for years. There were the Waldensians and the Lollards There is a plaque in a place in England that talks about the first known Church of Christ that supposedly was meeting there in 1157. That's a long time ago. That's 400 years before Martin Luther came on. Jesus prayed this prayer for unity. But in America and throughout the world, that prayer for unity had not come to fruition. What you had was division. And about the same time, all over the world, not all just the United States, but especially in the United States, there were men and women who knew nothing about each other but had Bibles and honest hearts. And they came to the conclusion that we could be united if we would throw away the creeds and we would just use Bibles and just do the best we could to do what the Bible says. And all over this area, you had men popping up who had this belief. And they began to teach 
and share these beliefs. And they came from all different religious backgrounds, all different places. They came like this man, James O'Kelly, was a Republican Methodist. And this group where he taught, he was preacher among these men, and he began to teach that, you know what, we're just Christians. There's a guy named Rice Haggard. If you read history, this guy shows up over and over and over. We don't know much about him, but we know he was around a lot of these restoration movements. And a lot of these people knew and referred to this guy. He just shows up over and over, and everywhere he shows up, they're doing and teaching the things that you and I do and teach today. These people were way up north. They weren't associated with these others, but this guy Elias Smith was a Congregationalist in New England in 1798. He published a paper called The Gospel Proclamation, and he began to preach the gospel in the area of New England in 1808. And the Congregationalists had nothing to do with this guy. They pronounced anathema against him because he was teaching just the Bible. Abner Jones, another fella, he was born in April 28, 1772 in Maryland. He converted to the Baptist church when he was young. I believe this is the guy that when he was eight years old, got worried about his soul. And he talked to his mama about his soul. And she said, one of these days, one of these days, you'll feel the call of God on you. They were Calvinists at the time. And she said, you'll feel the call of God on you. And you'll know that He saved you. Someday, just wait for it, son. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited. And he waited. And he never felt it. And then one day, one day in church, he heard a preacher preaching and he preached John 3.16. And this man jumped up in services and he said, yes! And the preacher said, I believe Mr. Jones has got religion. And he said, no, but I know how to find it now. And he began to teach and was spread. His gospel was spread. A guy named Barton W. Stone. There are descendants of Barton W. Stone in the church at Purcell where Sarah, my niece who's here today, her father's an elder in that church. And they're descendants of this man in that congregation. The Stone family are descendants of this guy. Barton W. Stone was very influential. He was a Methodist preacher and he converted to be a Presbyterian. Isn't that strange? He went back and forth. But after that, he began to read and teach. And this guy named uh, Rice Haggard showed up and spent some time with him. And they together talked and they they uh, had this uh, presbytery, the Springfield Presbytery. And they wrote, when they decided they didn't need these presbyteries, which were organizations bigger than the local church, they wrote the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. I want to tell you something. If you want some good reading sometime, you need to go find this and read it. You'll be amazed at what they said. And I guarantee you're probably going to agree with 90% of it. He said, we just need God and His Word. And we can follow and serve Him. Raccoon John Smith. This guy was a character. He was pretty uneducated as far as worldly education goes. In fact, I believe it was Alexander Campbell said about this man, he said, he's the only man I ever met that education would hurt. <laughs> this guy was a country as they come. One of the stories that I read about him is that uh, in the community where he was, this woman was going to be baptized. 
or not baptized. She she died. She was going to be buried. I don't know why I said baptized. She was going to be buried, and they brought her to the church. And you know, he was the preacher in the area, and he was supposed to preach the funeral. And he walked out front, and he stopped him. He said, "Set it down." And they put her casket down in the yard. And he said, "She never set foot in this church while she's alive. God forbid we'd make her now. She's dead." And he preached the funeral outside. This guy was rough and tough. But he believed and taught the same gospel that you and I today believe and teach. Thomas and Alexander Campbell. I don't remember it, but some of our older members may remember us being called Campbellites. You all remember that? Luke remembers that. You're older than you look, Luke. (laughs) In fact, I've read in some things they called us Campbellite water dogs because we believed in baptizing people. The reason people called members of the church of Christ Campbellites is because Alexander Campbell was a very educated, very well-known man. He had a debate with a guy named N.L. Rice. I believe it was N.L. The guy's last name was Rice. They debated for 18 days, 6 hours a day. (laughs) Can you imagine? You know who was moderator of that debate? A guy named Henry Clay who ran for president of the United States, was very influential. When Alexander Campbell traveled through Washington, D.C., he stopped and stayed at the White House. He was very well known and very well respected in America. And he was probably the most well-known spokesman of the time for this restoration ideal. That's why people called us Campbellites. As we've already seen, this, this has been taught for thousands of years. It goes all the way back to the Bible. But this guy in America really popularized the ideas. He and his father were raised in Ireland. His father came to America in 1807 because he had bad health and he wanted to come to America and see if his health would improve and then he would send for the family. When he got to America as a Presbyterian, he began to study the Bible and he came to the conclusion that John Calvin was wrong, that Calvinism wasn't right. And he came to the conclusion that there should be unity He's the guy who wrote the words, we speak where the Bible speaks and are silent, where the Bible's silent. He came to that conclusion while his family is still in Ireland. His son, Alexander, lived with a family called the Haldanes. And the Haldanes were restoration men and they taught and studied with Alexander. Alexander left the Presbyterian church in Ireland before he came to America He decided that the Presbyterian church wasn't right. And he dreaded having to tell his father when he got to America. And he showed up and his father had to tell the family that he had changed and was no longer Presbyterian. And lo and behold, they'd come to the same conclusion. You know, I've talked about these guys. A lot of them paid a very high price. A lot of them gave their lives for the Bible that you have. A lot of them gave their lives for things that to you and I are very easy to believe. It's very simple and very easy. Especially for someone like me who was raised in the home that taught these things. These were very difficult times for these people. 
And their ideal that there could be unity among Christians if we would just throw away the creeds of mankind. And they had an idea that I really like, and I believe it it's the reason they had this great, great appeal to so many people. And the idea was this, they stated it this way, in essentials, unity, in opinions, liberty, and in all things, charity. You see, somebody can't genuinely claim to be a Christian and deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You're not a Christian if you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. That's an essential. But there are so many other things that aren't that, but they're opinions. And opinions divide people. Because I might have one strong opinion and can't have a different opinion. And if the Bible doesn't plainly say that one or the other of us is right, that would solve it if the Bible plainly said, or at least it should. But if the Bible doesn't plainly say that, how are we going to figure out who's right, me or Kent? Because Kent's got his verses and I've got my verses. I have a friend, a very dear friend, and he and I disagree on 2 Peter chapter 2. The Bible says that it's better to not come to Christ than to turn back. He said the latter end will be worse with them than the beginning. If somebody comes to Christ and then turns away from Him and goes back into the world, the latter end will be worse than the beginning. What do you think that means? Well, I'm not going to tell you who believes what, but one of us believes that there are degrees of punishment in hell. And that people who were Christians who know and understand and believe the gospel and then turn away from it will be punished to a greater degree in hell than those who have never learned and never heard the gospel. The other one believes that it doesn't have anything to do with eternal punishment in hell, but what it has to do with is the fact that you're worse off because you know it now and there's nothing anyone can tell you to bring you back. He and I have debated that for years. Over and over and over for years. And you know what? Every single time we debate that, we leave in perfect unity. Really? How do you do that? Well, see, one time he agrees with me and the next time I agree with him. No, that's not the way we do it. You know how we do that? We both are in perfect agreement that the latter end is worse than the beginning. Whatever that means, the latter end is worse than the beginning. And we can have unity on what the Bible says and our agreement. We don't have unity as far as all of our understandings of our opinions. In our opinions, though, I give Him the liberty to believe how He believes about it, and He gives me the liberty to believe how I believe about it, although I'm right, (laughs) I think. But we give one another that liberty, and we have love as brothers between one another, And we can have unity and we don't have to have division and we don't have to have strife. And we don't have to split and not work or fellowship together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. I believe that formula, that plea, is good for us today. And I believe it's a message our world needs. 
I believe it's a message that Jesus Christ taught. And I believe that it's the only alternative to one man ruling it all like the Pope tried or to this wide denominationalism that everyone says everybody else is going to hell if they don't agree with me exactly on everything. I believe our heritage is that of unity. I don't believe we use that to excuse things that aren't right. But I do believe if we insist on God's Word as the authority and let opinions not hold authority, then we can truly be people who speak where the Bible speaks and are silent where the Bible's silent. I close by reminding you that Jesus Christ wants unity. He wants us to love each other and to get along. He wants our relationship with one another in Him to stand supreme above our opinions. And you know, when my opinion is so important that I won't have anything to do with you over my opinion, guess who's God in my eyes? I've made me God. I've made my opinion God. And my opinion's not God. Only God is God, and only His Word has authority. And I encourage you to consider that. If you have a spiritual matter you need to bring before the church today, we do offer a song of invitation if you will come to the front and make that known as we stand and sing.